March 31st, 2013, in Zagreb, Croatia, meditation on first verse of the Sukhshastaka. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So, for Gorpanima, we're going to do, thank you for your patience, we're going to do a meditation on the first verse of the Shikshastika. Is that okay? Yes? Everybody's okay with that? So, everybody wants to be a success, yes? Who here would like to be a failure? Anybody want to be a failure? No. So, the question becomes, what is a success? How do we define a successful life? So, materialistic society tells us that successful life consists of having wealth and fame and status in the world, maybe doing something good for society, happy family, yes? Is that the definition of success? Good education, good job, status in society. But we can question whether or not all of that really makes us happy. So we can ask, are all the people in the world who are rich and famous and beautiful, are they all happy? No. No. 90% of them, are they happy? No. No. Could I have some water? Have some water? Water. (laughs) Right. So every day one can read in the news that some other rich, famous, beautiful person is not happy. And yet, we go on thinking that these are the keys to happiness. So Krishna gives us in the Bhagavad Gita, 6th chapter, a very different idea of perfection. So this is taken from the 6th chapter. And Krishna is telling us here that perfection is when we can see our real self. When our mind is pure and we can see the real self. And when we see that real self, we will, Krishna says, relish and rejoice in the self. Everybody would like to like themselves, yes? Yes. Yes? But it's a little hard when you're trying to like the false self. If we think that we are something other than the soul, it is hard to like ourselves. So I see everyone here is very attractive, but I'm sure when you look in the mirror in the morning, you go, perfect. (laughs) Thank you. No, we're always with like a little more of this or a little less of that or a little different color of this or something like that. Yes? And if your body gets older, that gets worse. (laughs) So if we think we're this body, it's very hard to rejoice in the self. 
Or what if we think that we're the mind? So would anyone like to take the contents of their mind and put it out for public display? No, no this is another problem. So how are we going to relish and rejoice in the self if we think we're the body or the mind? So when Krishna is saying to relish and rejoice in the self, this is the real self. The real self is a soul that's part and parcel of Krishna. Right? And when we see the real self, we have boundless happiness. So materially, one cannot have boundless happiness. If you think about the greatest material happiness you have ever enjoyed, was it boundless? No, it had limits. So even the happiest we've ever been, there was some limit. One cannot say, I feel unlimitedly, totally satisfied in all respects. <laughs> and then it has a limit of time. So even if you're getting great material happiness, it doesn't continue. You know? And if you try to make it continue, it doesn't work. So if you have a really delicious pizza and you keep eating pieces of this pizza over and over, you, it, it doesn't give you any happiness anymore, right? If you're eating continuously for four or five hours, blah, become disgusted. So it's not boundless, it has some limit, and you can't force material happiness not to have a limit. Whereas here, success, Krishna is saying, is boundless transcendental happiness experienced through transcendental senses. So we generally think that the way we are enjoying is through these senses, through our eyes, nose, mouth, skin, etc. But we may be surprised that our bodily senses are actually restricting our enjoyment rather than facilitating it. How is that? I'm sure you've all heard of people who have out-of-body experiences, yes? Yeah. Near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. So their body's on the surgery table, and they're up by the ceiling looking at their body. They're looking at their body. Isn't that interesting? But the eyes are in the body. What is it that's looking at the body? Huh? Did you ever think about that? And when they're out of their, when a person's out of their body, they say they can see 360 degrees. Interesting. And someone who needs glasses in the body, they can see perfectly without glasses out of the body. What does that tell us? That tells us that there's other senses being covered by the bodily senses. So the body senses are covering the senses of the mind, and those are covering the senses of the soul. So just like sometimes we wear mittens, a glove that has one big piece for all four fingers, and how much can you enjoy with your skin wearing a mitten? Not very much. Uh, so our enjoyment covered by this mental and bodily senses is actually limited. So in order to enjoy boundless transcendental happiness, it has to be enjoyed through transcendental senses. And of course, uh, this implies 
that we are seeing our relationship with our source, Krishna, because the way that the pure self enjoys unlimited happiness with their spiritual senses is by relationship with Krishna. Rishikesha, Rishikena, Sevanam, Bhakti, Ruchite. Our, our real senses are meant to serve the master of the senses. Now, not just when Krishna is saying this is success, he's not saying just for a moment. He says one never departs from the truth. So one is experiencing this real success is when one is experiencing this constantly. The truth is always there, not just, oh, I get a little idea of the truth and then I go back to illusion, but to always stay in the truth. And then Krishna also says, in this way, one will not be disturbed by anything in the world. So many people take to religion with the idea that religion is going to solve all their material problems. That if I pray to God, he'll cure my diseases, and he'll put money in the bank. <laughs> yes? That one time I took a friend of mine to the hospital for some surgery early in the morning on a Sunday in America, and there was a television show playing in the hospital of some Christian minister, and he was saying, you just send me $5 and I will send you a magic cloth that if you put it under your pillow, you will wake up and you will have money. So people are thinking like this, that religion means God will give me money, he'll give me health, he'll give me a good job, uh, like that. Uh, but real success is when one is happy regardless. When sickness and health, uh, poverty and richness, fame and infamy, when these things don't affect us, when we're having our happiness within. So this is Krishna's definition of success. I think it's a lot better than nice house and big car. And, huh? So then the question becomes, okay, I want this. How do I get it? What is the process by which I can get this? Actually, really, we already have this. It's the question of a process to realize what we have. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu compares it to a treasure that's buried on your property, that your father buried on your property, and you have to know where to dig. So we're going to look at the processes for attaining perfection as practiced in different ages of the earth. So at different times in the earth's history, there were different recommended processes. So the first process that we're going to look at was the process at the beginning of the cycle of the ages. So according to the Vedas, the earth goes through cycles like seasons. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. So in the springtime, these keep rotating. These keep rotating. Each of these are called a yuga, and one complete, then there's a yuga cycle. And 1,000 yuga cycles make up a day for the chief demigod, the chief celestial in the universe, Brahma. So the first called Satya Yuga, the age of truth, the process was meditation. Now in order to practice meditation as a means of awakening and enlightenment, one has to live alone. 
Anyone who's saying that you can have meditation as your primary means of spiritual realization while you're working at a job, etc., etc., then they're not teaching you the real process. They're teaching you something else. Just like you can buy food that has no calories in it. Do they sell that in this country also? Zero calorie food, right? Looks like food, sort of tastes like food, but it's not food. <laughs> so if they say there's a meditation process where you can go on in your ordinary life, it's exactly like that. The real meditation process means you live alone, a complete abstinence from sex, no marriage, nothing. Uh, one lives on simple fruits and roots in the forest. So that might sound very... Uh, romantic. Oh, I'm just going to eat fruits and roots in the forest. <laughs> but you try it for a few days and see if you still think it's very romantic. So, uh, actually, many years ago, I did a fast like that. There's one top five days a year when you can do a special fast. So, some friends of mine and myself, we decided for five days we were only going to eat fruits and roots without salt, without spices. And again, the first day it was really exciting. And we thought, oh, we're just like sages in the forest. <laughs> and by day three, you're saying, give me food. <laughs> I want us to perform many complicated sitting postures and breathing exercises. Actually, even to start this process, one has to be very qualified. There are some problems with this process as well. Uh, one problem is that you realize the Lord as the all-pervading light. And in this realization of the Lord as the all-pervading light, you merge into that light and you lose the opportunity for the much higher bliss of loving service. Another danger is that you see... Uh, the more intimate form of the Lord as the Paramatma, the super self, the super soul, and you can think, oh, it's me. Instead of thinking, oh, that's God I'm seeing in my heart, you might think, oh, it's me. Another problem with doing this process exclusively is that it has, actually all of these processes have a diversion. And one of the things that happens if you perform this meditation properly is you get all kinds of powers. And most of us would be diverted by these powers. So one of them is you can control other people's minds. I'm sure many of us would very much like to be able to control others' minds. You can also get anything you like. You just meditate on it, right? I would like a strawberry milkshake. There it is in your hand. So when performing this kind of mystic yoga, you get these powers and you can get distracted and forget about achieving ultimate success. Also, especially in this age, the Kali Yuga, the winter of the earth, when we're not really qualified to do this process, many of the people who try actually become sick. They get different physical diseases and even sometimes mental diseases from playing around with the process that's for highly qualified people. Well, in the next age of the earth, the Treta Yuga, uh, the summertime of the earth, the process in that age was sacrifice. 
So in this process, you need to know many complicated rituals. You need to know how to chant the Sanskrit mantras perfectly. We have many stories in the scriptures where someone chants these mantras just slightly wrong and they get an opposite result. So there's the story in the Bhagavatam of Twasta who wanted to create an enemy of Indra. Instead, he created someone for whom Indra was the enemy. <laughs> so he got exactly the opposite of what he desired just by a little bit of mistaken pronunciation. Uh, to do these sort of rituals properly also is extremely expensive. It requires a lot of wealth, requires a lot of knowledge, and again, there's a diversion. So by performing these kind of sacrifices, one becomes qualified to live in higher planets in the universe. So the Vedas teach us that all of the planets and stars in the universe are, in, are indeed inhabited by beings, who, some of whom are higher than human beings and some who are lower than human beings. That there's a great variety. And there's planets much, much higher than that of the Earth where the material enjoyment is thousands of times greater, one lives for a very long time, but still one is not experiencing spiritual success of seeing the pure self. But one can get entrance to these planets by performing these rituals and thus get diverted from the main goal of life. Then in the Dwarpa Yuga, in the fall of the earth, the main process for enlightenment is worship of the deity. So proper deity worship involves, again, a lot of complex rituals, a very high degree of cleanliness. And if you really follow the proper procedure for deity worship, and you have to spend about an hour and a half every morning just taking your bath and getting dressed and doing various kinds of purification. So again, most of us are not qualified. And the problem with having deity worship as the only means of purification is that one can develop a very sectarian kind of religious idea that God is just in the deity, God is just in the temple, and one can forget that God is in the hearts of all living beings. Now actually, all of these processes, even in other ages, were combined with chanting the holy names of the Lord, and all of them require bhakti, all of them require some love of God in order to achieve enlightenment. So no matter what process one's doing, bhakti is still the underlying theme. And in fact, all of these processes are part of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement. They're all part of the process of bhakti. We certainly engage in meditation, especially while chanting Hare Krishna. One should be meditating on the sound of the name, the form of the Lord, the qualities of the Lord, the pastimes of the Lord. But it's not the kind of meditation where you have to go to the Himalayas and eat only, you know, berries. <laughs> it's a meditation you can do practically in your life, as Krishna tells Arjuna, Mam Anusmaram Yujitcha. You can think of me even while you're fighting on a battlefield. What to speak of while you're at the office or while you're at school or while you're washing your dishes. And we certainly engage in sacrifice, 
but very simplified forms of sacrifice where we're offering directly to Krishna. And of course, we also engage in deity worship. But again, very simplified forms of deity worship where our main goal is to have a very easy way to understand that everything I'm doing, I'm doing for Krishna. But our main process, even through all of these, is the chanting of the holy name of the Lord. Now whether chanted softly to oneself as Japa, or whether chanted loudly as Kirtan, or as a group in Sankirtan, uh, this is their main means of spiritual enlightenment in this winter of the earth. And even we can say that in the other ages of the earth, it is factually the chanting of mantras and the chanting of the holy name of the Lord and that connection of bhakti that gives the potency to all of these other processes. So why is it that this chanting of the holy name of the Lord is so effective at bringing us to the real success of life? So now we're going to go bit by bit through this first verse of the Shikshastika to see what are the benefits of chanting the holy name of the Lord. So the first one mentioned is Chaita Darpana Marjana. Darpana means a mirror. Actually, our consciousness is very much compared to a mirror. There's a saying in Sanskrit, Atmavan Manite Jagat. I see the world according to my own consciousness. So any of you who studied psychology or sociology are very familiar with this concept, or even if you've studied science, the concept of a paradigm, yes? You've all heard of this? So each of us has a paradigm. We have a cultural paradigm according to the country and the time in which we live. We also have a personal paradigm of what is real what means something, what things mean. And we see the world through that lens. Actually, none of us, well, this may sound very radical, but none of us are experiencing reality. Did you know that? None of us are actually experiencing reality. What we're experiencing is our interpretation of reality. We're experiencing our interpretation of reality. We're not seeing the world directly. We're seeing the world through a mirror. And that mirror represents our consciousness. So the objects in the world and what's happening in the world are reflected on the mirror of our consciousness, and that's what we see. So there's a nice description in the Bhagavatam, I believe it's in the fourth canto, of how the Kundalini Shakti in the body is acting as a mirror. And depending on, uh, Srila Prabhupada is explaining that depending on what chakra our kundalini energy is located in, in that way we will see the world. So if a person is in a very base consciousness, they will see the world simply as a place of exploitation. Right? If they're a little higher consciousness, so depending on their level of consciousness, how they perceive the world. Srila Prabhupada explains in the 20th chapter of Krishna book that a materialistic person sees the world as a very aggressive place. 
They see the world as a place of friends and enemies and fighting and competition for limited resources. Whereas someone in transcendental consciousness, they're seeing the same world, but they see everything is very happily situated. God is within every atom. God is within my heart. Uh, Krishna is within everybody else's heart. And everything that's happening is perfect. So depending on the amount of dirt on this mirror depends on how we view reality. You can think of it also like a window. There's clear windows, transparent windows, then there's partially clear windows, right? Translucent windows like you have in a, a toilet room. And then there's a wall, an opaque wall that you can't see through at all. So however clear one gets one's mirror, to that extent, one can see reality. And what does one see in the cleaned mirror? One will see oneself. We're talking about seeing the real self. One will see, oh, I'm a soul. I don't die when the body dies. I've never been born. I'm not born. I don't die. I can't get hurt. I don't depend on anything in the world for my happiness. One sees also karma the effects of action, the action that I've done and their reactions and how the laws of nature are working. One sees the effects of time. One sees God. And one sees the workings of illusion. One sees reality. One sees oneself when the mirror is cleansed. And the fire of material life becomes extinguished. So when one tries to become happy simply by connecting the gross senses and the mind to material objects, one constantly experiences a sense like a burning fire. And the reason for that is that our desires cannot be wholly and completely satisfied by contact with material sense objects. And so the result of trying to find happiness in that way is that we want more and more and more or different, 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 and we never feel, yes, now I have perfect and enough. I mean, maybe we feel that way for five minutes here and there. But again, you know, yes, now I have everything I want, my life is perfect, and a little while later, oh, but I could fix this. Oh, and I could fix that. And what about this? So Krishna says, never satisfied and burns like fire. So by chanting the holy name, right, first effect is that the mirror of the heart becomes clean. Why? Because we're in touch with God, the supreme pure. And the next is that this fire is put out because one starts to experience real satisfaction within real satisfaction within. And therefore, one no longer thinks, I have to get more and more different, different, more and more different, different, or sometimes less, less. <laughs> more and more, less, less, different, different, change this, change that, shift this, shift that. One sees, I already have everything that I need from within. So this, this sense of burning material desire is cooled. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says the holy name acts like the moonlight shining on the Kairava. The Kairava is a white lily. It's actually not a lotus. This is a photograph of a Kairava. 
and you can see that unlike a lotus, it doesn't have the pericarp in the middle, although sometimes when this verse is translated, it's translated as the white lotus, but scientifically speaking, it's not a lotus. A lotus is generally bloom in the sunshine, but this kairava blooms at night in the moonlight. So this kairava, this white lily, is compared to the heart. That actually we, the soul, in the heart of this body, are as beautiful and fragrant and soft and delicate as a white lily. But in our conditioned stage, we're like in a, in a bud form. <laughs> we're not accessing it. So generally, the flowers that bloom in the sunshine, the sun gets the flowers to bloom, but the sun is doing it with intense heat and intense light. Of course, right now, we might feel very grateful for that intense heat and intense light of the sun. But if you're in full sunlight in the summertime, especially in the tropics, it's not very welcome. Huh? Whereas the moon is very refreshing. So after one has worked hard all day and you come under the beautiful moonlight, you feel cooled and refreshed. So to have a lotus open in the moonlight, it's very gentle. Sometimes we may think the process of enlightenment is something very harsh. You know, people talk about a process of cleansing the heart of material desire, sometimes in very harsh or even violent terms. But this chanting of the holy name is very gently, very beautifully, very soothingly, in a very cool manner, opening this heart's lotus so that it blooms and shows its real fragrance and beauty. And in this way, not only do we see that I am not this body, not only do we see just in a general way that I am a soul, but as the white lotus of the heart opens, we see the specific nature of the soul. So when we chant the Hare Krishna mantra, which is direct contact with the Supreme Lord, we start to see, oh, this is my relationship with the Lord. He is my friend, or he is my beloved, or he is my master, or he is my child. And we start to see this opening of this flower. It's, we start to see what is our actual spiritual form. So I'd say in the beginning, that underneath the bodily senses are subtle senses, and underneath the subtle senses are spiritual senses. Well, you know what? Those spiritual senses have a form. We have a spiritual body. And not just in a general way, I'm a spirit, but what do I look like? What is my complexion? What clothes do what color clothes do I like to wear? Where do I stay? What relationship do I have with the Supreme? So all of this blossoms by the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. And the Hare Krishna mantra is called Vidya Vadu Jivanam. Vidya Vadu Jivanam. So Vidya means knowledge. Vadu means bride. And Jivanam means life. So usually, usually, not always, but usually, when a man lives alone, he lives very simply, and when he brings a bride into his house, she decorates the house, usually. 
not always. Usually it's the woman who comes and puts up the beautiful curtains and the tablecloths and the pillows and all that kind of thing. The woman brings, the bride brings life to the house. So in the same way, this chanting of the Hare Krishna is like a bride that brings life to transcendental knowledge, right? Or at a wedding, I'm sorry, my dear men, but nobody is interested to see the groom at the wedding. <laughs> Everybody wants to see the bride. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend any of you. So it's the bride who brings the life to transcendental knowledge. So just transcendental knowledge, this means knowing aham brahmasmi, I am spirit, I am part of God, I have nothing to do with this world, with the sufferings and enjoyments of this world. I'm never born, I never die, everything is perfect, I can find happiness within. That's transcendental knowledge. Ah, but then comes the bride of the holy name. Because there is more life to transcendental knowledge than that. Not simply that I am part of God, but that God is a person. Because the Hare Krishna mantra is actually a person. And God is a beautiful person who, who is eternally a young boy engaged in playful sports. Right? A musician. Of course, Krishna can play any instrument, but he particularly likes the flute. So he's a musician, he's a dancer, and he's simply engaged in pastimes of love. And we are engaged with him in our eternal form. So this is the real life of transcendental knowledge, full of color, full of variety, full of emotion, full of relationships, beyond just simply... I am spirit. And that comes by association with the Supreme in the form of his holy name. And it expands the ocean of transcendental bliss. The soul is limited, but it can experience unlimited happiness like an ocean. And what is that happiness that is a taste of the full nectar for which we are always anxious? What nectar do we want? We want nectar of playfulness and love and adventure that's yet peaceful, of excitement that's secure, right? of meaning, of connection and yet autonomy. This is the nectar for which we are always anxious. And this can be found in our relationship with Krishna as experienced through the holy name. And the holy name is like a bath for the soul. Because one might question, so much happiness and unlimited ocean of happiness that's always getting bigger and bigger. 
tasting the nectar of association directly with God? Well, isn't that selfish? To look for our own happiness? To say I'm going to chant Hare Krishna for my own happiness? No. This happiness the soul experiences in relationship with Krishna is as pure as a bath in the most clear water. This happiness, this ecstasy that is experienced by pure chanting of the holy name actually cleanses the soul from any material contamination. This happiness is the greatest expression of love for Krishna. And in fact, the happiness of the soul in loving Krishna gives Krishna the greatest happiness. The greatest way we can serve Krishna selflessly is to find ecstatic happiness in his service. Therefore, the holy name is always victorious. So keeping that in mind, we can meditate on this verse.